0: We're excited to announce that our very own podcasting platform, Zencaster, has become a new sponsor to the show. Check out the podcast discount link in our show notes and stay tuned for why we love using Zen for the podcast. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich
1: all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it every time.
0: And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price.
2: Ba-da-ba-ba. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello out there in uh, archaeology podcast land. This is Dr. Alan Garfinkel. I'm the president and founder of the California Rock Art Foundation. And what we do is we identify, evaluate, manage and conserve rock art, both in Alta, California, and in Baja, California. We conduct field trips, we have trainings, exercise, we do research, and in every way possible, we try to preserve, protect, and coordinate treasures of Alta and Baja, California rock art, of which there are many and diverse. We also work closely with Native Americans and uh, partner with them to recognize and protect sacred sites. So for more info about the fabulous California Rock Art Foundation, you can go to carockart.org. Also, I'm I'm open to give me a call, 805-312-2261. We would uh, welcome sponsorship or underwriting, uh, helping us to defray the costs of our podcasts, and also membership in California Rock Art Foundation. And of course, donations since we are a 501c3 nonprofit scientific and educational corporation. God bless everyone out there in podcast land.
0: You're listening to the Rock Art Podcast. Join us every week for fascinating tales of rock art, adventure, and archaeology. Find our contact info in the show notes and send us your suggestions.
2: This is Alan Garfinkel, your host for the Rock Art Podcast, episode 23. We are interviewing tribal archaeologist Jeremy Freeman, who works with the uh, Standing Rock Lakota Sioux Tribe in North Dakota, and will have some remarkable reflections on his management and interaction with the Native people on a two-million-acre reservation. Welcome, everybody out there in archaeology podcast land. This is the 23rd episode of the Rock Art Podcast with your host, Dr. Alan Garfinkel, the founder and president of the California Rock Art Foundation. And as always, we always have an interesting and remarkable guest. And we're absolutely blessed and honored to have Jeremy Freeman here, who's a tribal archeologist for the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe of North Dakota. He uh, teaches anthropology, archeology span at Sitting Bull College and works as an interpretive guide on the Mandan Indian Village in Fort Abraham Lincoln State Park in Mandan, North Dakota. He also founds an archaeological program and coordinator for a a learning group. His BA is in anthropology from Heidelberg College. His MA is also in anthropology at Ball State University. And he's been what we call a professional archaeologist slash cultural resources manager for over 20 years, working in various firms, museums, universities, dot, 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 all over the place. His passion in part is for public outreach. I think his passion as well is in the area of uh, rock art studies and also the interface between native heritage, indigenous cultural values, and the nature of anthropology and archaeology. And with that, I'll say hi to my old friend, Jeremy. How are you? I'm doing well. and Thank you. I'm honored to be here. And uh, thank you for that introduction. Well, God bless you, Jeremy. I'm so glad we finally connected to do this. When last I saw you live, I think you were in a bit of a transition, weren't you? You know, Your life was sort of open and things were developing, but you hadn't obtained this particular position, had you?
1: I don't think I had at that point in time. I think I was bouncing around at that time, mostly looking for employment. And I think it was sometime after that last time up there in uh, Ridgecrest, I'd gotten a call from Denning Rock to come join the team here.
2: How'd you ever land such a prestigious position? I don't
1: normally open with that, but I'm just curious. Sometimes I ask myself that question as well. <laughs> 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 you know, and it's it's interesting. I was actually teaching a summer camp at Southwestern College, and it's in San Diego area yeah. uh, this summer. And I did a phone interview for the physician. And after the interview, I hung up and I texted my girlfriend. And I said, yep, I'm not hearing from Standing Rock. <laughs> you really said that? I did. <laughs> I, I thought it was the worst interview I'd ever done. So,
2: <laughs> what, what that proves is sometimes
1: the uh, consideration of what we think is going on is not going on at all, is it? It's true, you know, and I must have said the right things and exactly it's funny you know oftentimes you know my supervisor he'll reflect on, on that he remembers that interview and, and what does he say apparently there were like 12 13 candidates and he remembers some of the questions he asked me and I must have just kind of hit on the right ones but I felt honored he and I were doing a site visit at Custer National Forest and something he said to me he's like you know no matter where we go and I say this and I'm a truly humble person he said this no matter where where we go I hear you talking at a higher level than the archaeologists we encounter at these agencies and he's like I still feel to this day that we made the right choice in that interview.
2: What an amazing compliment really and based on our lengthy and sort of self-reflective you know comments and conversations I think he's right. I really do. I've always had a high opinion of you and I think you have a, a depth of understanding and sophistication that is certainly remarkable. So here's the opening question, the million dollar question, how the heck did you get involved in this crazy cultural resource management, archaeology, anthropology, rock art thing that we call our profession. Where did it originate and how did it emerge as a emphasis or passion for you in your life?
1: It was kind of like a a moment in time. It was actually when I was young, I was in sixth grade, I think. It was my family took a family vacation and we we did kind of the, the cultural tour, but one of our stops was Colonial Williamsburg. And, uh, on our, our return trip, we stopped at Mount Vernon, George Washington's home. and Yeah. And I, while we were there, uh, after we did the tour, and I was, of course, you know, I was uh, just kind of taken aback about, you know, I had this real interest in history, was really mm-hmm. cultivated at Williamsburg. But at Mount Vernon, I um, we saw archaeologists working, you know, behind the stables. And I know not everybody has this moment, but, you know, I remember we were went out to the wharf there on, on the uh, Potomac River. And mm-hmm. I said to myself, you know... I wanted to pursue archaeology as a career. And how old how old were you then? Oh, probably what, 12, 13 years old.
2: That's amazing. Wow. That's quite a remarkable epiphany, I have to tell you, at that young and tender age, don't you think, Jeremy? I,
1: th- I think so. And it, it certainly had uh, colored my, my, my early career. I actually, you know focused my studies on actually on historical archaeology. And that was really where my particular passion was. So you began as an historical archaeologist.
2: So stepping back from that, how did you pursue your dream of a study in archaeology and history? Where did you begin to sort of, you know, do that? Did you kick it off? Did you go to a
1: particular college and get a degree? I did. Yeah. I I actually attended Heidelberg College. And, and the reason mm-hmm. for that was there was a professor there who would become one of my undergraduate advisors, mm-hmm. Dr. Mike Pratt, who uh, had done a lot of work at a battlefield, which is kind of well known in, in the area I grew up. I, I grew up in uh, Northwestern Ohio. And there was a famous battle there, uh, the Battle of Fallen Timbers. And he had uh, done some archaeological work there. And had made the newspapers, and the main premise was that the monument wasn't necessarily memorializing the, the, the lo- location of where, where the, the primary battle had taken place. And so he had, he had done quite a bit of work out there, and that really, you know, with my my interest in history, particularly in historical archaeology, I I thought that was a, a, a good place to go. It wasn't necessarily a, a large university where i kind of get lost in numbers, and I don't regret that decision. I think my education at Heidelberg was, was quite fulfilling. What degree did you get at Heidelberg? I get a, a BA in Anthropology. And it was in Anthropology. And then what? And after that, I, I worked uh, several years. I, I, I did uh, several CRM jobs. For those who are new to the, you know, this particular realm, the word
2: CRM <laughs> stands for <laughs> Cultural Resources Management. What the heck is
1: that? What's Cultural Resources Management, Jeremy? I mean it's essentially doing archaeology for profit okay but it's it's fulfilling the guidelines under the National Historic Preservation Act yeah you know we have we have to tell everybody even though most most people
2: might know but you know the, this acronym CRM it's, it's funny we're trying to use that acronym for some of the work that the California Rock Art Foundation does and they told me it's customer relation management. <laughs> <laughs> so, so he said, "No, no, that's ours, CRM." So, anyways, so you were involved in in some work, some actual occupation, employment after the BA. And what other things did
1: you do, or how did that go vis-a-vis advancing your career or your background? Well, I, I spent several several years doing that, and had been yep. working on on you know preparing my my materials for grad school and and all that. Okay. I I'd actually participated in a couple of interesting projects during that time. Shortly after I graduated, actually, uh, another one of my undergraduate advisors, actually, just one day I, I went to volunteer. They're doing some lab work, and I just went to volunteer. I was still young and green, and he asked me if I wanted a job. I was like, oh, yeah, I could use a job. <laughs> <laughs> and... <laughs> so I, I ended up spending, I, I didn't necessarily work, uh, it was a seasonal job, I didn't end up doing it year after year. It would depend on my work schedule, but I ended up, that's really what really invigorated my interest in, in doing the public outreach, because it was mm-hmm. doing archaeology, teaching teaching youth the archaeological arts, you know, the, the science of archaeology. We actually were working up at Johnson's Island, it was a preserved war camp for Confederate officers during the Civil War. And- oh, wow. So again, it was historical archaeology. Mm-hmm. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, actually, I ended up writing my my master's thesis on on that site, looking at nationalistic oh. Confederate nationalism and, and how it was a, a nascent foundering of, of a, a particular ideology for the Confederate soldiers. Mm-hmm. So we, I, I had worked for him for several years, and most recently was in 2013. I, I would go back uh, anytime I needed a job, or really. To be honest, anytime it worked in my schedule because I, I had enjoyed working with them so, so much. It was always always rewarding and working with kids had always been rewarding. And how how old were the kids that you were working with? They would range anywhere from about fourth grade of age to, to about to high school. Okay. But young, very young. Yeah. Yeah. The majority of them were fifth through seventh grade. Okay. And what did you teach them and how did you teach? How do you go
2: about teaching young people about the interface between history and
1: archaeology—that's a good question, Ellen. <laughs> <laughs> that is a good question because I, I, I've spent years evaluating that question and, and yeah, what I'm the trying best to figure it is. out. Right? <laughs> Absolutely. But I really picked up a, a lot of a lot of really good at input from working there. You know, wh- one thing you, you want to focus on, on, on the hands-on aspects and, and two, you, you want it to be what is often referred to in the literature as authentic education, where they're not just simulating, they're actually doing something, but they're actually learning something from the process, you know, whatever, whatever they may learn. I mean, you could tie it into the STEM education. Give me an example. Well, you know, one thing I focus on a lot is is looking at STEM education. So, you know, when we're looking at science, you know, you're practicing science. Yeah. Even if you're excavating, I mean, you use math and, and science when you're excavating, but developing a hypothesis and, and, and thinking things through and thinking through questions. Using the scientific method then. Absolutely. And I actually used some of that model that my advisor I'd used in a program that I had put together when I was working at at Shumla Archaeological Research and Education Center. And we were actually doing uh, a program for Montessori students out of Houston, Texas. And one thing about archaeology is it's it's so broad and so vast, and we can utilize that in the multidisciplinary nature of it. No matter what the interest level of of a student is, it has an application in, in every other discipline. And and so what I, I, I did is I used rock art sites in, in that particular mm-hmm. exercise. And what I did is I, I would I had the students go to different rock art sites, look at the uh, rock art, categorize it, record the attributes uh, of the, the rock imagery, and and develop hi- hypotheses. And then we gathered together. And through a peer review process, I just kind of led the discussion. But I had them talk about what their, their findings were uh, with the group. And had them talk about you know what the strengths and weaknesses are of, of their cat classification schema and, and things of that sort, so they were participating in the scientific process and they were going through a peer review process with their peers. I think learning you know about how science actually works using rock art.
2: I think that's that was absolutely brilliant. That's just amazing that you were able to sort of take this you know fairly high level and sophisticated kinds of thinking of applying the scientific method. To students that were of that age and just having them do a, a hands-on
1: interactive kind of exercise, I bet that was just a blast for them. Did they have fun? They, they, they did. I think they really enjoyed it. And, you know, it was I, I think it was really telling and, and I think rewarding when one of the actually not one, but but multiple of the, the instructors, the Montessori school instructors who were accompanying them came up to me uh, afterwards and said, you know, what what you've done today is right in line with the types of education that we try to imbue these students with in the a monastery environment. And i I looked as that as an extraordinary compliment. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, where did you go next? I guess you, you're you moving into your, your graduate element, aren't you? I am. Um, yep. Bouncing around a little bit, but <laughs> I'd worked for that undergraduate advisor. I'd also worked for Mike, uh, Dr. Mike Pratt as well on a um, public archaeology project at, at Fallen Timbers where we had actually volunteers come out from the local community, that's Toledo community, uh, with metal detectors and helped assist in that survey. It was we uh, really learned a lot about how to look at uh, battlefield sites because we, we found out quickly that traditional archaeology is almost virtually ineffective uh, on battlefield sites. We, we found virtually nothing in our, our, our test pits, our test units. Most of the artifacts that were found were, were from the metal detectors. <laughs> Fascinating.
2: Fascinating. Well, let's, let's just sort of hold that thought, and then in the next segment, we'll get a little deeper into what your discoveries were, and then perhaps we can talk a bit about your current position which must be remarkable. See you in the flip-flop.
0: off your first three months or go to Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R.com and use the code ROCKART.
1: Waiting on a tax return?
0: Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose
1: money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.
0: Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich.
2: doing the uh, Rock Art Podcast, episode 23, and this is the second segment of our program. We have a uh, gifted scholar who's a personal friend. His name is Jeremy Freeman. He works as a a tribal archaeologist with the uh, Standing Rock Native people in North Dakota. Jeremy, welcome back. Thank you for having me back. So, I think we got to sort of the benchmark of some of the things that you were involved with in the realm of public outreach. Now, I think we should perhaps transition to your current position and maybe talk a bit about what it's like to be a, I guess you might call it a tribal archeologist or a uh, working with the TIPO.
1: And what's a TIPO? The TIPO is a Tribal Historic Preservation Officer or and, and or office, depending on how you use it. And mm-hmm. it was established as part of the amendments, the 1992 amendments to the National Historic Preservation Act. Just a little uh, trivia question here. Standing Rock was actually the first THPO office that was established after the 1992 amendments. Wow. So a pioneer in
2: all things then, vis-a-vis this uh, provision of the federal statutes, correct? Most certainly. And so what does a tribal archaeologist do? How many archaeologists are there working at Standing Rock? Unfortunately, it's just me. (laughs) (laughs) I thought that was the answer, but I did not know. How big is the area that you cover for the Standing Rock Sioux Nation. Just a little bit over 2 million acres. 2 million acres. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> so, have you even seen all the country that's there in 2
1: million acres? I can't imagine. That's enormous. It certainly is. And I have not, not yet. I've been actually all over the reservation for different projects, mostly because we have different agreements and different projects that are going on. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's overwhelming, to be honest. I... <laughs> To be honest, I had no idea what the job would entail when I accepted. I, I had no idea. And I I had no idea how busy I would be. How do you get familiar with
2: two million acres of land, country? What is the, the environment
1: like? Give us sort of a sense of the landscape there. Oh, sure. So it's in the uh, the Northern Plains or the High Plains, mm-hmm. which is kind of a misnomer because they think of the plains are going kind to of think of like kind of a flat landscape. Certainly parts of North Dakota are, but where, where we are, it's an unglaciated. Part of the state and it's quite striking it's a dissected upland with relatively significantly relief i mean there's level areas it's of course you know virtually treeless except in the river valleys it's mostly siltstone There uh, is a limestone bedrock but it's not really necessarily karstic area so it, most everything that we're seeing is, is on the surface there are rumors that there are some rock shelters and or caves here I have not yet ventured out to see where they are, but there are certainly areas like that that are in the Northern Plains, especially towards the Western part of the What's the current fauna like? What kind of animals are out there, if any? It's actually quite diverse. I was rather struck by, you know, the the diversity. There are anything from white-tailed deer to mule deer. There's actually a moose crossing sign. So there are actually moose here. There's elk, porcupines. Of course, you know, your kind of usual things, the raccoons and skunks. There are actually antelope. Wow. That we occasionally see running around. Are there any bison or are those all extinct or were there ever any bison in that area? There certainly were historically. Okay. There are today, but most of them are on ranches. There are some okay. wild bison at Theodore Roosevelt National Park. I see. We actually here at Sandy Rock actually have a couple of bison herds. We've oh, actually, really? one of the programs we've been talking about, mostly my supervisor, uh, John Eagles, is a THPO, is talking about us getting involved in managing a bison herd and looking at traditional sustainable ways of of maintaining bison herds.
2: Fascinating. So that's what the environment is. What do you do, Jeremy Freeman, as the sole archaeologist in 2 million acres on the plains in Standing Rock Sioux tribe on the reservation? Is this all reservation land per se? Mostly.
1: Okay. Most of the work that I do certainly is, although we do go off reservation for projects and, of course, for consultation. One thing, and this is something that I realized rather quickly, not that I hadn't understood this prior to assuming this role, but we, of course, act as the SHPO. So, as per those 1992 amendments to the National Historic Preservation Act.
2: That's a State Historic Preservation Office.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. And so we review any projects that are done within the exterior boundaries of Standing Rock Reservation. Okay. And then we also conduct our own work as well. But we also consult on projects that are well beyond the boundaries of, of Standing Rock. You know, traditionally the uh, Lakota people had a very wide area and so anything within the treaty territory fort Laramie treaty of 1868 um, anything within their ancestral lands these are all of concern to the tribe and so we engage in consultations with various agencies i've been on consultations down in uh, colorado as far as uh, trinidad colorado doing consultation there of course we'd work very closely with some of the agencies here in north dakota we get inundated with mail we don't just get a couple letters a day we get boxes (laughs) of mail boxes
2: of mail. What does a box of mail mean? How many pieces of mail
1: are in a box? 50, 100? Probably anywhere between 50 to 100 reports that might come in in a box. A day? A day, yeah. Oh, my word. Obviously, we can't possibly review them all. But what we try to do is we try to pick the ones that are of greatest concern, that we want to get involved in, or we want to have greater consultation. And so for those of you out there who send letters to TIPOs, if you're disappointed, you say, oh, they never respond. It doesn't necessarily mean that they're not looking at them, but we're limited in our time when we have virtually hundreds and thousands of reports coming in and trying to get our own projects done. It can be very challenging.
2: So you're like a one arm paper hanger.
1: I kind of am, and so in addition to that, uh, doing reviews for uh, letters, we write concurrence letters. I uh, also do NHPA or Section One Hundred Six compliance work uh, here at Standing Rock. It, we run it just like we do any other CRM business. I put together a cost estimate. The one difference is that it has to go through a approval process. We receive the RFPs, the requests for proposals, and then I prepare a cost estimate based on what I think it'll you know take to conduct and complete a Class Three resources inventory. And then I have to submit that cost estimate along with the proposal to our committee. So we actually report to the economics committee. And I've been sitting before many times describing the project, you know, giving them a little details. And once it gets approved in committee, then that committee will then take it to council before we can actually proceed with the project. And then I actually submit that cost estimate to the client. And if they approve, I send them a contract, they sign it, and then we conduct the work. So in other words, When you say client, is it that someone is planning
2: on doing something on tribal land and then to meet the uh, mandates of the National Historic Preservation Act, they have to evaluate and consider the uh, cultural resources. And so that is done by your office or by on contract? How is that handled?
1: it's done largely by our office. We, of course, operate under the auspices of the National Historic Preservation Act, but we also have additional tribal law, namely uh, Title 32, which is a cultural resources code that we also operate under. And uh, within that code, we do require a 100% survey of any sort of project that's going to be taking place within the exterior boundaries. So this does include A home site. So when home sites, okay. Some of the tribal members are applying for a home site. Ah. It's on trust land. So they will go through the application process. And part of that process is actually having the THPO office conduct the cultural resources survey for that. And since the policy is is that if they're tribal members, we conduct that service at no charge to them. So we are often busy conducting surveys like that for those types of projects.
2: So these are for smaller projects for the homes. But you also, I guess, must. Be involved with larger projects as well that have other sorts of clients, don't they?
1: We, we do. What might those be? They can vary. Anything from telecommunications tower. We did a couple of cellular tower surveys this past year. We uh, actually just finished up a survey for the uh, municipal and rural and industrial water supply for a 26 mile pipeline. Wow. We are actually just working on some reroutes and looking for possible routes to avoid impacts of sites uh, today. We just completed a couple of surveys for the, the two airports here at Standing Rock.
2: So you got all these various clients and they're, somehow you evaluate the projects and they have to end up paying you if they're not tribal members. What do you discover and what sorts of things might rise to the threshold of something that someone might have some interest in the rock art realm?
1: Certainly. My research interest now is, is in rock art. We certainly do have some of the traditional rock art that what most people think of as rock art, you know, the petroglyphs and pictographs. But there are other forms of rock art, too, that are possibly less well understood, one of which is what's known as a petroform. And this is actually the uh, arrangement of rocks varying in size, anywhere from 10 centimeters to we've seen some rather large rocks, you know, that were probably originally as glacial erratics. And they're incorporated into these features so that they're uh, consists of rock alignments that are used for ceremonial purposes. We've seen them arranged in rock alignments, in effigies, and a variety of things. You know, there's rock alignments out there that actually just mark places of power. And we, we see these actually all over the place where They were doing different ceremonies, such as a humbletcher ceremony or things of that sort, where, you know, young men were being tested, you know, it could be somewhat more recently. See, we don't know how old some of these features are, so... In some ways, we know that some of these are related to constellations, and we are starting to see more and more as we start to learn the constellations. We're seeing, you know, I, I've seen this before, you know, and they're actually mirroring what we see in the sky. We actually did recently did a site visit where the um, constellation that corresponds with the Pleiades it was known as the Wechinchila shakoi, the three sisters.
2: Ah, okay, yeah.
1: I said on three, the seven women. Yeah, Shakowi is seven, so. It was there. It was actually created on the landscape. So the petroform
2: itself is a rock alignment or a, is it a mirror or a representation of what we see in the sky with rocks? Is that what you're talking about?
1: They are. Uh, yeah, they're a representation of the different constellations within the uh, wow the Lakota cosmology, what's referred to oftentimes as Lakota star knowledge. You were privy to this
2: from the uh, traditional knowledge holders, I presume the elders or those that are people that understand the sacred knowledge and the worldview of the Native people. And then they could help you understand what you're discovering, I presume. Is that correct?
1: Yeah. I mean, to be honest, as an outsider, I'm not necessarily privy to all that sacred knowledge. They certainly share a great deal with me, and I'm always grateful for anything that they share. Right. I realize more and more, not, not that I had ever thought I knew everything, but I I realized there's so little that I do know. As I interact with them more and more, it's really opened up my perspective and changed how I look at archaeology and and rock art in particular.
2: So working with Native Americans has caused you to sort of dismantle your structure of knowing and humble yourself, doesn't it? It most certainly does. Okay, we're gonna go to the break and come back again, and we're gonna probably drill down on some of these very specific discoveries and Find out what we think we know about them and why.
0: You may have heard my pitch for membership. It's a great idea and really helps out. However, you can also support us by picking up a fun t-shirt, sticker, or something from a large selection of items from our tea Public Store. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash shop for a link. That's arcpodnet.com slash shop to pick up some fun swag and support the show. Well, this is uh,
2: segment three. We'll be finishing up here for episode 23. This is your host for the Rock Art Podcast, Dr. Alan Garfinkel, with our guest scholar, Jeremy Freeman, who is the sole tribal archaeologist, as we have learned in this interview, for a two million acre reservation for the Standing Rock folk in North Dakota. Jeremy gave us a little snapshot of the environmental elements of that part of the country. It is indeed on the plains, but he revealed uh, some other interesting sidebars. Jeremy, why don't you tell them a little bit about the climate (laughs) and temperature variation in this uh, part of the world?
1: Certainly. When I was growing up in Ohio, I'd always seen the weather in the upper plains. And I was like, you know, I'm just glad I'm not there, you know, and (laughs) now here I am. So, you know, it's a strikingly beautiful landscape, but when winter hits, it, it really hits. The, the winters are no joke here. And
2: you just told me it's very long. It starts when?
1: We get our first snow in October, and then we uh, don't see the ground again, and usually until uh, late April or sometimes early May.
2: <laughs> and you say that the temperatures are dramatically cold, correct? They are. What's the average and what's the most extreme?
1: I'd say that the average during the winter, I, I'd say it's just an estimate, I guess. I'd say it's probably in the single digits below zero, probably anywhere you know, zero to, to 10 below. But it gets, of course, ex- uh, extremely cold. So uh, there was about two weeks straight last winter. It was, it was about 30 below. Two
2: weeks straight? Yeah. <laughs> wow. And as I said, you know, tongue in cheek, I said, that's when you get all your field work done because it's such a great time of the year. And you're saying... Yeah, you got to get your field work done before that so that during that period, I guess you do a lot of
1: analysis and write-up, I presume. Is that correct? Mostly, yeah. Although I have to, of course, write reports during the the height of the season as well, which is is unfortunate because our field season is so limited here. You know, it's fortunately, you know, I... I'd gotten kind of used to California where the field season really just never ended. And, and unfortunately, here we, we have probably about five or six good months uh, where we can uh, really hit it, knowing that if we have a, a workload uh, that it's, it's going to be... You know, challenge to try to accomplish you know everything that we need to do. But you know, during the winter, it is a, an opportunity to to uh, catch up on some of the report writing and as, as well as some of the other projects that we have ongoing here at the at the tribe.
2: Let's drill down in this last segment and talk about those. You know, one of the things you you mentioned that you think was, I'd say, very engaging and very very interesting are these petroforms that have sacred significance and some of the things you've learned about them or hope to learn and how you go about discovering them and and learning more about them. And I'll let you uh, take that and and run with it. We learned in the last segment that petroforms are basically rock alignments and they have rocks that are identified in different sizes. But I presume that for you to do what you do by the way of discovery and interpretation you certainly need some guidance, I would presume, from the uh, native people
1: themselves. Absolutely, and yeah, I I, I couldn't do it with, with, without them. And and I a hundred percent agree. My supervisor, he's he's a Lakota, and he makes the case to uh, the archaeologists and agencies that w- with whom we partner and, and consult with that that the native people have a unique experience. They have. They draw from a different database, and that's often a, a different database than archaeologists do. And that's it's an analogy that he often uses, and And I agree.
2: Explain that, please. Explain the native database, that wh- what it's like to to be a native person as a, as a Sioux, as Lakota, and how that differs from sort of our contemporary understanding of, I don't know, cosmology, the universe, our life ways, all the above. What is different and what is telling and significant to our understanding of these archaeological features and the rock art both as petroglyphs pictographs and of course the petraforms these
1: rock alignments please so we we actually have a cadre of, of other staff so I, I don't actually do it all my, myself I, I rely heavily on our seasonal staff and uh, we refer to them as a traditional cultural specialists they get compensated actually relatively well they get paid 50 dollars an hour and they work on, under my my guidance and and what do they do? They actually help assist in in the site identification. Okay, as one of the steps of the Section One Hundred Six process. And so we, I, I couldn't do the work without them, to be honest. We most archaeologists that work out here in the plains, they they don't recognize these petroforms as being sites because, to, to be honest, and and when I first started seeing them, I found it challenging as well myself, you know, uh, because you know differentiating a cluster of rock from glacial erratics from from these that have been deposited naturally. If things are eroding out of the out of the turf, it, it's very challenging.
2: Yeah. So trying to see what differentiate the natural phenomenon from the cultural phenomenon, you need these traditional cultural folk who have an intimate knowledge of the religious metaphors, correct?
1: Correct. And they've the ones that we have working for us, it's it's not just anybody give us
2: some examples so we can really get an insider's view of what you're going through, please
1: sure so i and most of them they've been brought up in this way of life but the ones that we we hire are ones that live this way of life you know they've been inculcated in traditional cosmologies in in traditional life ways they participate in, in ceremonies such as the Habletsha or such as the sundance and things of that sort they they have seven sacred rites here at the that they perform no, not all of them have, have, have performed all the sacred rites, but they've, they've certainly started their journey in that. And so. What are these seven sacred rites, Jeremy? That's a good question. And I, I don't know that I can recall what they all were. <laughs> can you give us a sense of what those
2: are, though? Are they coming of age rites? Are they challenges? What are they exactly? Is it a vision quest? What is going on with those sacred rites?
1: It's it's such a, a kind of a mixture of of, of each of those. It's uh, uh, there are certainly a, a coming of age ceremonies that are, are, are performed, and, and there are other things that are are meant to test you to to see if to test I, I guess your your virtue. And the the seven sacred rites are really a many various virtues that are are held in high esteem in uh, the Lakota belief system and the Lakota traditional ways. And each of these are are, are meant to. Either or either test that, or to establish that that you you retain these these various virtues.
2: And how is that, or how is this sacred knowledge and this information? How does that translate into what we're find, what you're finding on the ground vis a vis these uh, petroforms and the archaeological record? If you can make that bridge for us,
1: certainly. Yeah. So the petroforms themselves are utilized in, in these these various ceremonies. Oh, okay. One thing that we often find, and and this is actually a conversation that that John and I had when I first started here, is something you hear, you'll see in the literature throughout the plains is re- references to these teepee rings. Well, it turns out, and, and he and he's right. They're not TP rings at all. You, you wouldn't expect TP rings to be like in a perfect circle. The, the, the traditional h- hypothesis was that these were used to weight down the, the tents, you know, that that they that they lived in, and yet they, they yet they still retain perfect circular nature. And one critique that he often uses is like, where do you find these sites? You, you find them up on these ridge tops, up on these terraces. And the analogy he uses is, we lived in an area where we were surrounded by enemies. Do you really think that we would be camping up on these highly visible terraces, you know, where we're going to be seen by our enemies? <laughs> Pitching their tents. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that wouldn't be very smart. So what are they used for? So they're actually used for different ceremonies that, that are being performed. And it might be a, a ceremony where there's a, a young man who's being tested. He's, there's a, a circle that's created and he is instructed to either sit or stand in that circle overnight, sometimes multiple days with no food or no water. And it's, it's testing his resolve. And they I understand they keep a close eye on him, but if they that young man doesn't pass a test, if he steps one foot out of that circle, he's not considered worthy and, and he's not inculcated. He's not initiated in, into that particular next rank or that that particular society or whatever it is that he was being particularly tested for. But they would often choose young men, young women who, who had particular aspects to them that they would perhaps even, you know, not necessarily even willingly, they would, they would subject him to the, the, these particular tests to, to see if they were able to, to pass on to that, that next particular rank.
2: Interesting. Interesting. Okay. So I, I, I think I understand those teepee rings and those other rings associated with those ceremonies. You said sometimes that there's effigies. Are they effigies other than that celestial or astral element? Are there other kinds of effigies you've discovered?
1: Oh, yes, there are. Um, and, and some of them are, are are quite quite stark. Some of them, you know they're 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 there and after they're pointed out to me, I was like, yeah, you know, I, I see it. But uh, many of them are are animal effigies. so we'll we'll see things such as uh, turtles as, as a common one. These were used in fecundity rituals. You know women who were trying to conceive or, or had conceived would often, create these these turtle effigies some of them are, are quite apparent some of them ha- need a little bit of interpretation and why the turtle for for fertility help me understand
2: that's one i don't don't know about why is the turtle associated with fertility
1: and fecundity do you know that's a, a good question and i don't necessarily know the answer to that. <laughs> I'm,
2: I'm sorry i gave you a stumper i, I humbly <laughs>
1: apologize let's move on to salamanders <laughs> <laughs> Certainly. So salamanders are associated with power and protection, and so uh, and what what's interesting is you don't necessarily often see these together. But we were just doing a site visit at Custer National Forest, and we actually saw saw the two together, like adjacent to one another. And I know uh, John thought that was rather striking because he said, you know, don't, you know, you have the power and and the fertility, you know, kind of side by side, you know, not necessarily things you it's just necessarily associate with with the, the same sort of activity, but but. It was rather interesting, and and, and the interpretation there. Um, I don't know if he had one necessarily or not, but it was uh, it's it kind of makes you think about well, you know, what was going on here? Why why are we seeing these two? Are, are these are these contemporaneous? Are these are, are this is a multi-component site? You know, what was going on? We, we we don't necessarily know, and that's one thing. And and I know he and I both talk about this all the time, and we're kind of marvelled. Unfortunately, that this this field, as interesting as it is, is can also be frustrating. But it it raises more questions than it does answers. But it's the pursuit of those, those questions and the answers that, that drives us. And it's the most fascinating part of this field.
2: <laughs> now, offline and even before your interview, you were telling me about some interesting developments in your role and working as the uh, tribal archaeologist. I think you were talking about issues of sustainability and proliferation. Maybe
1: as a closing, we only have a couple minutes, but I think you should talk about that.
2: You remember the uh, animals we were talking about?
1: Yeah. So uh, one of the, the projects uh, among um, among any of these, I, I think we have we have grand visions for, for where we'd like to see the THPO program go. Where uh, one thing I've been involved in is, is actually one of the many things <laughs> is putting together grants. So I've been actually working on, on writing some grants. And one thing that we'd like to actually get a little bit more involved in is working with uh, sustainable uh, bison herds. We've actually w- have a close relationship that we've established with Theodore Roosevelt Industrial Park, where they, they call the elk herds every year. And We've actually have a close working relationship with them, where we're actually going to integrate traditional hunts and things of that sort with with tribal members, and they're going to allow us to participate in that. Also, with Theodore Roosevelt National Park, one thing that my uh, John's really into is is is, is horses. Uh, traditional horses, in particular. Oh wow! They have a, a particular strain of horses that. Some scholars have traced, and we don't necessarily know how conclusive this is or, or how uh, substantiated it is, but have, have traced these horses back to to the Lakota, saying uh, with claims that they are Sitting Bull's horses, that they are descendants of of Sitting Bull's horses. Now, we, we uh, there, there isn't really a way to necessarily scientifically establish that. We, as far as I know, but it is interesting, and we do have actually some of these. Uh, they, they call them Lakota uh, horses. We do have a small herd here uh, at Standing Rock, they're they're, they're having problems with uh, inbreeding at Theodore Roosevelt. So we've been talking about doing an exchange where we're going to have basically an exchange of genetic material. We're going to exchange horses to strengthen the herd. That's amazing. And that's another program that we're potentially going to be involved in. Great. Well, I think that's all the time we have. I
2: think we packed this particular program, the three episodes with a tremendous amount of insight and wisdom and an amazing discussion about Standing Rock and Lakota theology and and the relationship with cultural resource management and rock art studies. Jeremy, honor and a pleasure. You have uh, anything you want to share to sign out with? I know I put you on the spot again. (laughs) No, Alan, I can't think of anything after you put me on the spot here.
1: (laughs) No, I, I think you know it, one thing that it's, it's been a, it's been an honor and a pleasure for me to, to work here uh, at Standing Rock. You know, of course, you know Standing Rock is is kind of well known for the the Dakota Access, you know, uh, and, and what had happened there. And that that's something that I was only tangentially involved in. I, it was mostly over by the time I had arrived here. But we are continuing that fight, and it has, of course, its reared its ugly head once again. We had a victory more recently where a, a judge has had uh, ordered that a a full environmental impact statement, an EIS, needs to be conducted. And this is prior to the expansion of capacity of of that line. Yeah.
2: Oh, congratulations on that. Thank you so much. I think we'll uh, sign off. Thank you, all those people in archaeology podcast land. See you in the next episode.
0: Thanks for listening to the Rock Art Podcast with Dr. Alan Garfinkel and Chris Webster. You can find this podcast on the educational podcast app Lyceum, L-Y-C-E-U-M, and wherever you find podcasts. Find show notes and contact information at www.arcpodnet.com forward slash Thanks for listening, and thanks for sharing this podcast with your family and friends. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV Traveling America, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Rachel Roden and David Ian Howe. This has
2: been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network.